Okay, so Redneck 808 and Heartbreak Ass Dude that you just heard is this guy, James McGraw. He's a cab driver, or he was, in 1968. And he's recalling the afternoon of April 4th, when King was killed. And the guy he's talking about, it's tough to kind of understand him because he's got one of those voice box things from, from smoking too much. But the guy he's describing is this guy, Charles Stevens, that he was supposed to go pick up. This drunk who was living in the room next to where Ray was staying at the boarding house. And this guy, Charles Stevens, is the state's chief witness. Hell, he's like their only witness. And according to this cab driver, James McGraw, shortly before King was killed, this guy is shit-faced. When I go up there and he was so drunk he couldn't get out of bed. And I turned around and left with all him. And this is just before King is shot, because then he says, And before I got out to the train station, it come over the radio that um, Martin Luther King had got shot. Okay, see, the state wasn't able to link Ray's gun to the bullet that killed King. They never test-fired Ray's rifle, nor did they ever try to assess the trajectory of the bullet in the autopsy. And, of course, no one saw the shooting. So they need an eyewitness. Otherwise, what do they have? They need someone to ID Ray in the flophouse. And this is the guy they got, this drunk who, according to even some Memphis homicide police, was too drunk at the time of the killing to be worth anything. But somehow the state is satisfied with this drunk next door to Ray's room at the boarding house. Because they say he said that he saw Ray coming down the hallway from the bathroom after the shot. This guy that no fewer than four people say was in varying degrees of shit-faced is who the state's case relies on. This guy. Mr. Stevens, what do you think of that picture? Does that look like the man? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, from the glimpse that, I've, that I got of his profile. <laughs> what? It doesn't. It doesn't. No, sir. Only a sir, glimpse of his profile? For one thing, <laughs> he's too heavy. His face is too full. Well, well there's strike two, then. He has too much hair. <laughs> okay, strike three. And his nose. It's too quiet. Okay, so so different. No, different. You're different person. So you saw a different person, or if you saw anybody at all, dude. Because I know people that said you were getting turned up that night. What the hell did you see? And this is the guy that the FBI's case ultimately relies on. This guy. The murder of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shots that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. The number one question is King. The number one question is King. The number one question is King. Welcome back to the crux. Okay, so this drunk guy, Charlie Stevens, he really is the state's main slash kind of only witness. 
He's the only guy that the state can say saw Ray's face. I mean, now, of course, I just played you audio where he says he didn't really see Ray. He doesn't think. And that's from the time of the trial. That's from 1969, that tape I just played. But despite that, FBI documents still call him the principal witness. But, but let's be real. He's their only guy. Who else do they have? They don't have anybody else. They have this one other witness who was in the flop house who was total trash. This guy, Anschutz or something, Anschutz. His, his testimony is, is trash. It doesn't matter. And then there's Charlie's common-law wife, Grace. She was in the room with him at the time of the assassination. It's just those three. That's it. There isn't anybody else in the flop house at the time of the assassination, or not anybody that matters to the state's case. So let me explain the boarding house as, as best I can, so we can sort of recreate the scene that's really at the heart of the state's case with Charlie Stevens as their principal witness, as they say. So the boarding house is on a second floor, and it sort of straddles these two buildings that face onto Main Street, which means the back faces toward the Lorraine. And now I'm going to have maps and pictures of all this on the website, so, so if I do a poor job here of, of describing it, just go into the website and it'll make a lot more sense. But there's a wider section over this place called Knipes Amusement Company, they sold like records and, and jukeboxes and stuff like that. And then there's a narrower section separated by sort of an alley but from, the, from the wider section. And it's over a place called Jim's Grill. And it's a long corridor lined with single rooms. And that's where Grace and Charlie were in their room. Ray is in his room and this guy Anschutz is in another room. But again, he doesn't, he doesn't really matter. So Ray is in the next to last room, room 5B. And Charlie and Grace are in 6B, the last, last room, meaning the room closest to the Lorraine, closest to the back of the building. And they share the end of the hall with the bathroom. The bathroom is right next to their room. This is a communal bathroom that they all share. Again, this is a, this is a flop house. It's not the Four Seasons, so they all share, share a bathroom. And this bathroom is also the one with the window that the state says Ray shot out of at the Lorraine. You can see the Lorraine from the bathroom at the end of this hallway. And so what the state contends is that Ray fires the shot out of that bathroom window and Charlie and Grace being literally like sharing a wall with that bathroom, they hear the blast. Charlie leaps out, opens the door to the hall and sees Ray leave the bathroom on his way out of the building. And that's where he's able to see Ray's face and identify him. But I need y'all to understand how much of a piece of a shit witness this guy Charlie Stevens is. We already heard from the cab driver, McGraw, who said when he went to go pick him up, the dude was just sloshed. And so he turned around and left. We already heard audio from Stevens himself around the time of the trial. Acting like he ain't never seen Ray in his life. This guy, this guy lives in a flop house, bruh. Come on, you live in a flop with your wife, just like wilding out all the time. Like, come on, this guy is a nightmare of a witness. He's so much of a nightmare of a witness that the state locks him up for weeks ahead of the trial. Like they got to keep an eye on him because he's just out here wilding, and they don't know if they're going to find him in a ditch or whatever. They got to they keep, him, keep him dry and keep him out of trouble. 
so he can be their guy. So they lock him up for weeks for no crime. He hadn't committed any kind of crime. But they snatched his ass up and locked him up. And then Grace, his wife, or or common law wife, also gets taken away before the trial. But like way far away and for a hell of a lot longer. She gets committed to a psychiatric facility by a Shelby County judge, not, not a family member. A Memphis judge sends her off for almost 10 years before the trial. And of course, folks investigating conspiracy will insist that she was committed in order to keep her away from Memphis, away from the courtroom, away from Charles, because she was in the room too. I mean, she was right there with Charles. So, you know, people, people wonder what were, were they so scared that she would, that she would contradict what Charles said that they conveniently sort of shunted her off. I mean, Charles was already doing a real good job by himself of contradicting himself. He had grace in the mix and, and then what, what the hell do you have? In fact, Grace was only gotten out of the hospital by one of the lawyers trying to prove a conspiracy behind the King killing. Again, like 10 years later, he had to take her into like his legal custody. And you wonder if, if he hadn't been there, would she have just, just languished there forever? So just how problematic is this witness, this drunk Charles Stevens? So at the beginning of the episode, we heard from this cab driver, McGraw, and he gives us the state of of Stevens just before the time of the shot. But then we have this guy, Wayne Chastain, who was a reporter for the Memphis paper, and he corroborates McGraw. He explains that he found Stevens drunk shortly after the assassination. He says this in a deposition for the assassination committee. He says that he went and interviewed Grace and Charlie sometime between 6.30 and 7. Remember, the shot was fired at 6.01. So he's up there shortly after. And he says that Charlie was, quote, staggering drunk. And that Grace said Charlie didn't see anything. And then we have Captain Thomas Smith. Captain Thomas Smith, a homicide detective. He would later become captain in charge of homicide for Memphis PD. And he's the first one on the scene with his partner, Roy Davis. And he finds Stephen so drunk, quote, intoxicated to the point there was no sense in bringing him downtown for a statement. There was no reason to take anything this guy said seriously because he is plastered. And yet Stevens has made the most important piece of the state's case. This incredibly problematic Stevens is made the the, the centerpiece of the FBI's case. But Earl Caldwell isn't. Caldwell isn't a drunk. He's a New York Times reporter. He's staying at the Lorraine. And he's there when the shot is fired. And he sees a mysterious figure in the bushes just below the boarding house. What I saw... This man just very clearly rise out of these bushes. He was in sort of a crouched, stooping position. I did not see a weapon in this man's hands. But I saw this figure directly 
across from the motel. And also, of course, uh, the man in the bushes was a white man. From the day of the assassination until this day, no police, no FBI agent has ever come to me and said, what did you see? And Caldwell is not the only one to see this, this figure in this overgrown, like, brushy, bushy area behind the flophouse. Solomon Jones was the driver for King in Memphis. And he was there at the Lorraine when King was shot. And he, too, sees this guy who was, quote, moving rather fast. And he recalls that he believed he was wearing some sort of light-colored jacket with some sort of hood or parka. I interviewed Solomon Jones in the lobby of the St. Joseph Hospital approximately about 7.05. This was the story he told all of us. As soon as the shot was fired, he looked out over the limousine. He saw a sniper with a white sheet on his face ducked back down into the bushes. A few seconds later, he rose out of the bushes without the sheet, walked to the wall, jumped down from the wall. And you must understand that other people were coming out of the fire station at the same time, jumping from the wall. Solomon said this person he saw in the bushes joined in with the people jumping from the wall, jumped from the wall, walked on the premises, and he said he was scared. Okay, so I want to pause here and, and try to explain that area that he's talking about, where two people and others saw this, this hooded figure, like right after the shot was fired. So there are the buildings that face onto Main Street, Knipe's Amusement Company, this place called Jim's Grill, right next to each other. And then on top of those is the Flophouse. And then right behind those buildings is this, is this sort of no man's land. It's, it's, it's often called an empty lot in stuff you'll read, but it's, it's not an empty lot. It's not lot sized. Nothing could like go there. It's just, like I said, it's sort of this no man's land. It's covered in this thick brush and bushes and, and a couple trees. I'll include photos and a map and stuff like this in, in show notes so you can so you can understand what I'm what I'm talking about. But it's just this kind of gnarly, unkempt area behind those buildings. And then directly behind that is like a retaining wall. Good size, probably eight feet tall or so, that lands onto Mulberry Street, which is barely a street. Not much to Mulberry. And then there's the Lorraine. And it's in that, like I said, that, that no man's land, that brushy, bushy area behind those buildings on Main, that Caldwell, a New York Times reporter, and Solomon Jones, a driver, say they saw this hooded figure. But they're not the only ones. R.R. R. Davis was a Memphis police detective. And on April 4th, he reports back what he saw. And he says, quote, I could see a person leaving the thicket on the west side of Mulberry with his back to me. Looked to me like he had a hood over his head. And that's a Memphis police detective that said that. Then we have Reverend James Orange, an SCLC staffer. And he says, quote, the first thing I saw was Dr. King's leg dangling over the balcony. When I saw the leg, that's when I looked back and saw the smoke. 
It couldn't have been more than five to ten seconds. The smoke came up out of the brush area on the opposite side of the street from the Lorraine Motel. I saw it rise up from the bushes over there. He continues, From that day to this time, I have never had any doubt that the fatal shot, the bullet which ended Dr. King's life, was fired by a sniper concealed in the brush area behind the derelict buildings. I also remember then turning my attention back to the balcony and seeing Merrill McCullough, that's Agent 500, up on the balcony kneeling over Dr. King, looking as though he was checking Dr. King for life signs. And then Reverend Orange says what a lot of other people say. He says that early the next morning, around 8 or 9 o'clock, that all of the bushes and the brush on that hill, on, in that little area, were cut down and cleaned up. And he says in conclusion, I will always remember the puff of white smoke and the cut brush and having never been given a satisfactory explanation. When I tried to tell the police at the scene as best I saw it, they told me to be quiet and get out of the way. I was never interviewed or asked what I saw by any law enforcement authority in all of the time since 1968. So let's assume that what these guys describe really happened. We're talking about a, a, a minister, a police detective, a New York Times reporter, and King's driver, Solomon Jones. So if you fire a shot, from that area, from that, that thicket, you're really pinned in back there. This will make more sense when you, when you look at pictures and, and maps on the website, but you're kind of hidden in that area. But you you got to get out of there. And that's the hard part. There's cover when you're in that little area, but whichever way you leave, you're now totally in the open. You're either in the middle of Main Street or you're essentially in the parking lot of the Lorraine. And you got to get out of there with a rifle? Good luck. And no one was seen leaving that area with a gun. Nor was there a gun found left back in that area. And so for years, people didn't know what to do with these reports of, of this figure, this hooded figure in those bushes. Again, reported on by a minister a New York Times reporter, a police detective, four separate accounts. I mean, how, how, how did he, what, did he just vanish? Or more importantly, how did his gun vanish if this was the gunman? I mean, even if he managed to, to jump down that retaining wall to get out of that area, he couldn't have done it with, with the gun, since once you jump down that wall, you are literally right there at the Lorraine. You're in the middle of everything in plain sight. Getting the assassin out of that bushy area is one thing. Getting a rifle out of that area seems a hell of a lot harder. Again, you're, you're hidden while you're up there. But you're seen as soon as you leave. It's a small area of cover surrounded by total visibility. And so, you know, th this, this confluence of evidence 
had people confused. It, it appears that the only witness placing Ray in the flop house upstairs was shit faced. And no less than four sober people saw a figure just below in the bushes behind the flop house and Jim's grill. Until Lloyd Jowers, the owner of Jim's grill at the time, came forward. And Jowers is now finally ready to testify under oath. He knows what happened to the gun because he took it from the shooter. Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed stick up? Number one question is can the bed